You really suck at football. You are the worst player I've ever seen in my entire life. I think I was just so unbelievably shocked when I heard that, that I didn't know what to do. Like, I thought we were going to be talking about my CF, and now all of a sudden I'm getting criticized for my athletic ability, and I just don't know, like, what's going on. But really what my dad was doing, and maybe not the most poetic way, was getting my mind off of this one dream that I had and shifting it to everything else that I had going for me in my life, despite my CF. I had to think about college. I had to think about my winter hockey season, my senior hockey season. And in a lot of ways, I probably was right. I was probably a better hockey player than I was a football player. And it was really more of a conversation about being aggressive with my cystic fibrosis care because there is no other way to treat for CF. There is only one way, it's to be aggressive. And that's what I took away from that. Welcome to Difficult Conversations, Lessons I Learned as an ICU Physician with Dr. Anthony Orsini. Dr. Orsini is a practicing physician and president and CEO of the Orsini Web. As a frequent keynote speaker and author, Dr. Orsini has been training healthcare professionals and business leaders how to navigate through the most difficult dialogues. Each week, you will hear inspiring interviews with experts in their field who tell their story and provide practical advice on how to effectively communicate. Whether you are a doctor faced with giving a patient bad news, a business leader who wants to get the most out of his or her team members, or someone who just wants to learn to communicate better, this is the podcast for you. Well, I am honored today that the Orsini Way has partnered with the Finley Project to bring you this episode of Difficult Conversations, Lessons I Learned as an ICU Physician. The Finley Project is a nonprofit organization committed to providing care for mothers who have experienced the unimaginable, the loss of an infant. It was created by their founder, Noel Moore, whose sweet daughter Finley died in 2013. It was at that time that Noel realized that there was a large gap between leaving the hospital without your baby and the time when you get home, that letter to start the Finley Project. The Finley Project is the nation's only seven-part holistic program that helps mothers after infant loss by supporting them physically and emotionally. They provide such things as mental health counseling, funeral arrangement support, grocery gift cards, professional house cleaning, professional massage therapy, and support group placement. The Finley Project has helped hundreds of women across the country, and I can tell you that I have seen personally how the Finley Project has literally saved the lives of mothers who lost their infant. If you are interested in learning more or referring a family or donating to this amazing cause, please go to thefinleyproject.org. The Finley Project believes that no family should walk out of a hospital without support. Well, welcome to another episode of Difficult Conversations, Lessons I Learned as an ICU Physician. I am Dr. Anthony Orsini, and I will not be your host today for the first time. Today, we have a very special host and a very special guest. For those of you who are familiar with our podcast or familiar with the Orsini Way, you already know Liz Porrick-Chris. Liz is our director of programming. She's been on the podcast as a co-host before and as a guest. And Liz has a very personal relationship with our next guest. And so I'm going to introduce Liz Porrick-Chris and then let her take over as the host. So go ahead, Liz. Thanks, Dr. Rossini. I'm so excited to be the host of today's podcast, and I'm so excited to introduce our next guest. Gunnar Esiason is the son of former NFL quarterback Boomer Esiason and is well known for his lifelong battle with cystic fibrosis. Boomer and Gunnar appeared on the cover of Sports Illustrated in October of 1993, 
to raise awareness about cystic fibrosis. He has spent his entire life in the public eye, first as the child of a famous athlete and now as an advocate and resource for those living with CF. Gunner is a rare disease patient advocate who is passionate about early stage drug development, patient empowerment, and health policy. Professionally, he has developed a patient engagement platform for a medical nutrition company, built a venture philanthropy practice at the Boomer Esiason Foundation, and was the head coach of his high school alma mater's varsity hockey team. He has consulted on clinical trial development, real-world evidence population health study, and a cystic fibrosis-specific mental health and wellness screening tool. Gunner has been the face of fundraising efforts for the Boomer Esiason Foundation, which has yielded more than $160 million raised for the fight against CF. His blog has amassed nearly 1 million page views since 2015. Gunner is presently working towards a Master of Public Health at the Dartmouth Institute for Health Policy and Clinical Practice. He holds an MBA from the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth and a BA from Boston College. During the coronavirus pandemic, Gunner was a leading voice in equitable vaccine access for people with underlying health conditions. His health policy opinions have been featured in the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, The Hill, and Stat News. His podcast, The State of Health, is available on all streaming platforms. I must confess that Gunner has been a household name in my family for the past 18 years as my daughter Annabelle was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis in 2003. I feel that Gunner's own experiences and the mission of the Boomer Esiason Foundation have paved the way for us as a family, and we're grateful for his willingness to put himself out there. We certainly have benefited from that generosity. Learning about treatment options, the importance of athletics, and insights into the latest medical research. Although there was one blog post about doing a funnel through his G-tube that I may or may not have turned into a cautionary tale, but I digress. The most important accomplishment for Gunner may be the most exciting one yet. Any minute now, Gunner's beautiful wife, Darcy, is due to give birth with their first child. Welcome to the show, Gunner. We are so excited to have you on. Thanks, Liz. And thanks, Dr. Rossini. Really appreciate the opportunity to talk. And yeah, I will caution the listeners that if I have to leave at a moment's notice, we're expecting an eviction from my wife at any moment. So that is very cool. Gunner, do you know what you're having? Is it a boy or a girl? Yeah, we're having a boy. You're having you got a, boy. a name picked out yet, or you want to wait for the big reveal? We do. The name is top secret, and the name will be revealed probably in the next uh, 10 or 15 days. Uh, I thought Sorry. we were going to get a scoop. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Our promise each week to the audience is that they'll learn important communication techniques and gain valuable insight in how to lead conversations with compassion. So let's get into it. People may think that they know who Gunnar Sison is, but who are you really, Gunnar? Can you tell us something maybe that the public doesn't know or how the journey to get you as this incredible pinnacle of time being my first guinea pig podcast guest? <laughs> I appreciate the question. Who is going to resize? Uh, I can tell you first and foremost that I hope that I am remembered for being an excellent father, first and foremost. That is my new goal in life. It's a goal that, you know, I'll be honest, I'm not sure I ever had that goal for me, considering where we were with cystic fibrosis not so long ago. But I think the best way to describe who I am is patient advocate, friend, son, husband, student, lifelong learner, and someone who is passionate about the rare disease world, people living with rare diseases, and especially those who still have unmet medical needs and fight the good fight every day, like you know, Liz, our families know all too well. Wonderful. So no secrets, no things people don't know. I'm going to push you a little bit. 
Wow. Things people don't know. What is a hidden talent? Wow. A hidden talent. Okay. Well, I, because you already brought it up, I do own the fastest beer funnel in the history of Boston College. And the way it happened was, as some people with CF do know all too well, I had a feeding food place when I was a sophomore in college. And since this is a podcast about conversations, especially inside healthcare settings, as the good doctor knows all too well, critical information just happens to always be conveyed as uh, patients come out of anesthetic hazes. And I came out of surgery after my G2 was placed. And I was told a critical information about feeding tubes. This is how you clean it. This is how you're going to clean the, the wound. This is what you should do to care for it. This is what you shouldn't do to care for it. And do you have any questions? But of course, because I was kind of loopy and coming out of it, I asked the nurse, I was like, well, can I put a beer through my feeding tube? I am in college. And the nurse <laughs> kind of laughed it off, said that I wasn't the first one to ask her, believe it or not, and left it at that. Without any you know, yes or no and leaving a conversation ending in some gray area, I decided to put it to the test about a year later, my junior year at Boston College. If anyone's lived in the city of Boston or, or knows what the college life is like up there, they know there's a lot of cold nights. And one night in particular, when our goal was just to get down the street to the bar, morale among the troops was pretty low inside our dorm room. And I decided to put it to the test. I walked into my bedroom, grabbed a funnel, grabbed my feeding tube extender, and I grabbed a natty light. You may ask why natty light. It's because I was on a college budget at the time. And there we were, funneled the beer right through my stomach to the shock of some brand new friends sitting in the room that night. But I think one of my really good buddies put it best and said, Gunnar, you've been given a gift. And I said, Max, I don't know if I would call this a gift, but it's a great little party trip that I haven't done since simply because uh, that beer came right back up two hours later. This is a public service announcement. <laughs> do not try this at home. If you have a G2, please do not do, do it. Do not funnel through your G2. <laughs> okay, well, we're off to a fabulous start. You've talked a lot about how your family has played in your success and how illness is more of a family affair. And you've been very candid about that. Can you talk a little bit about how cystic fibrosis has affected your family? And do you feel that it's defined who you are? Yeah, it's another great question. Simply because I consider care for cystic fibrosis, and Liz, you know this, to be active and arduous. For listeners at home who may not really know what cystic fibrosis is, it's classically associated with progressive respiratory disease. And treating cystic fibrosis requires nebulization, inhaled steroids, mucolytics, antibiotics, and of course, the physical therapy that goes along with clearing our lungs. From a very early age, my parents realized that the best way to get me to remain compliant and adherent with the really arduous care routine was to make it a social event around the house. So from a very early age, I never did my treatments alone. And the way my parents sort of came across that realization was I was about four or five years old watching Thomas the Tank Engine, of course, one morning. And my dad came in to set up my treatments and put the nebulizer mask on my face and then walked out of the room only to hear me cough and then have like a little bit of a come to Jesus moment. Like, oh my God, I just left Gunner in there by himself to do his treatments. You know, that's not right. Like I have to go in there and sit by his side to reaffirm to him that he's not doing this alone. And from that day forward, my treatments were always a social activity, right? My parents set up my treatment station, my treatment cart, the central part of the house, whether the TV room, the family room, whatever we want to call it. And believe it or not, whenever I had little playdates as a child, whenever someone new would come over to the house, my parents would just throw my treatments on me right then and there, just so my friends could see what it was like to live with cystic fibrosis, what cystic fibrosis meant to me on a daily basis. And it was important, right? Because it got me comfortable about having CF in front of other people, in front of new people. But it also led me to believe that, yeah, my CF health is directly correlated with the 
other things going on in my life. I could go to school. I could play sports. I could have friends over. I could have family dinners. I could do all of these things if and only if my health would allow me to do so. That's amazing. So I heard your dad came to our local children's hospital, probably not very long after Bell was diagnosed. And he told a similar story. And that's what we did in our family too. So when Belle would sit down for her treatments, my husband would go in and they would watch American Gladiator and professional bull riding (laughs) and monster trucks. And to this day, she looks at all of those things so fondly because it was family time and Mm -hmm. somebody was always in the room with her. And when I say that the way your family handled things paved our way, it's not untrue. Belle's about 10 years younger than you. I think you got your G-tubes around the same time. And I really felt like we were on this journey all together, which when you have a chronic illness Mm -hmm. and you feel alone a lot of the time, it's so comforting to know that there's other people and for your family willing to put themselves out there and show others how to do it well. Yeah, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that there certainly is value in the connections that my family were able to make together, right? It was extra additional time in the day when our family was sitting together. I think so many families look forward to the dinner table conversations and the things that are sort of revolving around the brief period of time when everyone's either done with school, done with the work day, whatever, and is bonding over a meal. For us, you know, I feel like we thought it was a little bit of a, an additional bonus period of each day where we got to spend time as our family unit together. Of course, as I grew up and got older, you know, as my teenage angst took over, I don't need my hawkish parents to be on top of me at all the time. And I was happy to sit there with my sister. But I think in those early years, it was definitely pretty formative for me, especially, but also for my sister, Sydney, who we still remain very close to this day, although we no longer live under the same roof. It really kind of gave us time to bond early in life. Do you feel that during the pandemic, when everyone was stuck in their houses or learning about masking and isolation, did you kind of feel like we felt in our family like, oh, yeah, we do this all the time. This isn't that big a deal. (laughs) Everyone's doing what we do. Did you kind of feel the same way? It's funny you say that because I actually reconnected with someone that I hadn't talked to in a while. And I noticed that the last text message I had sent to her was photo of me traveling in February 2020, right before the pandemic sort of like overtook the entire world. And there I was traveling with my wet ones, my mask, and a bottle of Purell that as any flight I've ever taken over the last 10 years, you know, I've wiped down the seat, I've had Purell, I don't touch anything, and I wore an N95 mask whenever I flew. So I felt like I was an early doctor. But yeah, I definitely noticed a lot of parallels between the contact precautions that suddenly everyone had to learn how to do and what I've and you know, what I've been, what your family has been living for the last however many years. Maybe a little bit of a crude joke, but I think back in the world shut down in March or April of 2020, talking with my dad, of course, over FaceTime. And he was like, maybe it's a way to calm me down. He's like, this is your Super Bowl. This is what you've been preparing for your entire life, staying safe from some sort of infectious pathogen. Because that's such a big part of cystic fibrosis is any virus, whether it's a common cold, the flu or whatever, threatens to be life-altering in cystic fibrosis. So There's really no difference in the way that I was operating on a day-to-day basis. Of course, maybe with some more urgency back in April that time when I think we all kind of thought the air was poisonous. And I recalled to my wife the other day, thinking back about the time when it was like in the middle of the the Vermont countryside with like no one miles of returning my ski rental for that season. And there I was wearing an N95 mask and hospital gloves out in the middle of like the Vermont wilderness, like putting my skis into a return basket with no one to be found. 
So it was definitely a different time for sure. And there was certainly some urgency, but I felt prepared because of my CF for sure. And I'm sure your family did as well. We did. I was recently in Costco with my kids before they went back to college and we went down the Lysol and wipe aisle and my kids were like, mom, look, it's your favorite aisle. I'm like, okay, (laughs) okay, fine. (laughs) I admit it. And I was like clutching my three pack of Lysol going like the score of the century. So they've been making fun of me about that for a long time. So they're like, mom, you're already good at this. I recently read somewhere that you were headed for law school when you were getting out of college. So yeah, Darcy, my wife, loves to poke fun of me for my dream of wanting to go to law school when I was an undergrad. She's like, I can't believe you wanted to be a litigator. I can't believe that was your dream. Uh, And I can't believe it was my dream either. But back when I was finishing up at BC, I did. I was preparing for law school. I was preparing for the LSAT. I was preparing to apply. And that's when my health really started to kind of collapse on me. And it became quite clear pretty quickly that I was not going to be able to do it. By the time I was ready to graduate from BC, I saw graduation really as kind of like a finish line because I knew that I needed to start taking my health even more seriously than I already was. Probably one too many nights with the funneling a beer through my feeding tube. But I do feel like I was in a need of stabilizing my health. It got to the point when in 2013 when I think I was on and off IV antibiotics in and out of the hospital every other month, if not more frequently. And for those who don't know, you know, one of the biggest parts of cystic fibrosis care is that we are very aware of the drug-resistant bacteria that lives in our lungs. And with every time that I was using antibiotics to treat that chronic infection that I have, you know, you're sort of dancing with the devil and you're making the bacteria even more and more resistant, you know, first, second, and third line antibiotics. So I was in a pretty rough spot. And my dream to go to law school quickly vanished. And I sort of started to shift my thinking towards, okay, well, how can I maintain having uh, patient advocacy impact in cystic fibrosis and rare disease while also being so, so sick? And I think as anyone who's ever dealt with you know, the American healthcare system or even the global healthcare system, like there's just so many complexities and nuances that go along with it that it's just so important to be aware And I dove in and started to learn about all the different nuances and and policies of care delivery in the US, from the basic science of cystic fibrosis, to how hospitals operate, to billing operations, to insurance coverage, healthcare coverage benefits. All that goes into patient care. And it really illuminated to me some of the the really dark and scary sides of the American healthcare system, but also where it works quite well. And one place where it works quite well is the rapid advancement of clinical trials, clinical research in our CF care centers. And I jumped into clinical trials as sort of like my way to to feel like I was doing something despite my very severe illness. Uh, And I learned a very important lesson in that first clinical trial that I enrolled into it didn't work, but that doesn't mean failures are a loss, a major loss in clinical research. I almost think failures are the wrong way to categorize the outcome of a trial. But my key learning was that within a rare disease population, patients don't really have the ability to say no to opportunities, right? Patients are a finite resource that exists inside an ecosystem that requires them to play a bigger role than ones that they may be willing to give initially. And it's because the only way you can advance the understanding of a disease is by actually allowing yourself to be part of clinical research to understand what drugs are going to work, what drugs aren't going to work, and where the very finite number of dollars available for that disease should be going. So that was a key learning that I had early on, and it was one that sort of filled that void that I think my desire to go to law school sort of left. 
I have a question. You mentioned patient advocacy a lot. You mentioned patient experience. You, you talked about clinical trials. I know from Liz's point of view, nobody's been through the system more than she has. And you and Liz and I go around the country teaching hospitals how to improve that patient experience. We're real patient advocates, communication. Well, you've seen it all. Tell us about what the patient experience and why you're so excited about the patient advocacy. I mean, you've probably seen the best and the worst in your time. I think the healthcare system is geared to seeing patients wrongly as implicit benefactors of the system that we are just along for the ride. And believe me, there may be some people that certainly are, but I think there's value in really being an engaged patient and understanding what's happening around you while you're inpatient or while you're dealing with outpatient or routine care. Because things happen so fast. Imagine for a moment that you're sitting in a doctor's office waiting for the doctor to come in. Oftentimes, you know, for that individual patient, like that's the pinnacle of the day. You're there waiting for however many hours to have that 15, 25 minute conversation with the provider, whereas the provider is just sort of going through the assembly line of visit, visit, visit. So immediately there's a disconnect and sort of a dichotomy of an experience that's happening for the patient and also the provider. And I think in some ways that disconnect can lead to a fast flying conversation. Things are left out. Things aren't considered preference sensitive care. Is not necessarily on the forefront, on the tip of everyone's tongue, at the top of mind for everyone? Not to mention the anxiety that goes along with living with chronic terminal illness can also sort of lead to what I consider to be like a false imbalance that exists during clinical encounters. In some ways, that's probably the place that needs the most improvement in care delivery is really seeing eye to eye with the patient and understanding what their needs, desires, and goals are, not only with their health, but also outside of their health. Because I think of every part of my life as a function of my health. I can do the things that I want to do when my health is managed, and I cannot do the things that I want to do when it's not managed. So it's important for my provider to know exactly what I've got going on in my life. And I'll give an example of what I'm dealing with right now. Right, My health is very stable. Things are going well in cystic fibrosis. We've had a number of drug breakthroughs that have allowed us to get there. And I'm sure we'll talk about that in a bit later in the podcast. But because I'm expecting a pretty serious life event coming up with the baby, I've added on additional supportive care just to get me going to the point where I know that I will be comfortable to operate in an environment where I can imagine I won't be sleeping very well. So those are things that are long planned out with my providers, with my doctors. And those are conversations that I think people with cystic fibrosis are used to having. Some forward thinking or scenario playing with providers where people who do not have chronic illness do not think that way as soon as they enter the care system. And it's complex. It's something that requires training, it requires a skill, and it requires seeing the bad sides of the health industry as well. And I can think of a number of cases where I've been inpatient, I have a history of hemoptysis, and there comes a nurse at me with a, a heparin pen because that's standard operating procedure on the ward. The last thing I need is a, you know, a blood thinner when I've got a history of hemoptysis. So there's a lot of nuances and complexities that sort of swirl around uh, hospital floors and hospital systems. My learning and my answer to your question at a very high level is just understand what's going on around you. Be constantly aware. And boy, does it help to have someone sitting in the hospital room with you that knows what's going on and what you need best as well. Whether it's you know a caregiver, a parent, you know, I'm sure Liz, you've probably had a number of tough conversations with uh, providers like my mom has. And more recently, it's been Darcy, right? Darcy's been my number one care provider inside the system as my go-to person. That's really interesting. How difficult of a shift was it for your mom to give up 
having that conversation. I was once walking past Bell's room. I think you guys were on a Zoom call and I heard you making fun of the CF moms, but in the most loving way, like, oh yeah, we know about those CF moms because the mama bear feeling takes over and you're not willing to let anybody in. So it must be a little bit hard for her to transition to let Darcy do it. You're right. Bell and I have had a number of Zoom calls because of her involvement now with the foundation and she's a wonderful person. And I think everyone knows the CF mom as like a catch-all phrase as the biggest fan for every person with CF. I can't say I've ever met a CF mom who does not share a number of qualities that my mom also has. And you're right. I think it's a hard thing to let go for parents, not just CF moms, but also my dad as well has gone through this too. Letting the CF patient, the person with CF or whatever chronic disease, operate on their own. And I always kind of have said, leaving pediatric care and going to adult care was one of the most liberating experiences of my life, but also one of the scariest feelings and moments of my life because all of a sudden the middleman was cut out. And the middleman, in my case, was both of my parents, maybe the middleman, the middlewoman. And it's because all of a sudden the responsibilities of my cystic fibrosis care from the pharmacy calls, insurance claims, scheduling, whatever, was suddenly laid upon me. And I think it's part of growing up. But it's a hard transition. But I will say my mom trained Darcy to the best of her ability and Darcy, my wife. And it's been a great transition. And I'm pretty sure they're in cahoots behind my back about how I'm feeling and and what's going on in my life. (laughs) Well, since this show is about communication, do you remember a specific conversation that really made you stop and say, there's got to be a better way for this to go on? And can you tell us a little bit about what that conversation was? So back in 2013, when I was very sick and I was kind of in and out of a hospital or in and out of different health events, and I was going from one pulmonary exacerbation to the next where my symptoms were just like constantly flaring. My doctor at the time, so I doctor today, by the way, and she's a wonderful person, really great. And I had a hard conversation, right? And it was something to the effect of, well, we may have to come to grips with this is what your life is going to look like in the near term. And I know it's not easy. But the truth is we're running out of antibiotic options. And it was realistic. It was painful. It was hard. It was the truth. But that all said, it was something that I did not want to hear. I was 22 years old thinking that I should be in the peak of my life, you know, right out of college, should be making money, should be having a job. But there I was living just like I was in high school and I could not get out of this very ugly and probably deadly cycle that I was in with my health. It was not something that I wanted to hear, but it really grounded me and put me in a position to think about, well, this is it. Like, What am I going to do with the time that I have left? And it really made me double down and think about my future that I may or may not have. Right? It really brought me down to earth. And I still think about that conversation a lot. It's humbling in some ways because it shows me what I've come from. And you know, this is really eight years ago now. So it's been a long time since that conversation sort of first came to fruition. But it also opened the door to my competitive side where I was sort of feeling like, you know, I wasn't going to have this. Maybe that's something that came from my dad, this like competitive streak that was certainly ingrained in my DNA. And that's sort of what opened the door to me thinking about it, stabilizing my health so that I could enroll in clinical trials, stabilizing my health so that I could have the beginnings of some career, whatever that might look like. And in a lot of ways, it really lighted a fire underneath me to think more about my health, not just in a day-to-day scenario, as that's kind of how I had been living, but more of a long-term, six months at a time goal where I could break myself out of that cycle. You know, I remember thinking 
back then when I was experiencing pulmonary exacerbation, maybe every other month, my goal initially was, well, let's have a pulmonary exacerbation every four months or every five months just to string some good weeks together. And that's kind of how I reacted to it. So then Trikafta comes into the picture, right? And for those of you that don't know, Trikafta is a new medication for certain people with cystic fibrosis, not everybody. And that for many people has become a very life-changing, life-altering opportunity, I'll say. So tell me what the timing from 2013 when you were so sick, when did the Trikafta trial? Yeah, so I was fortunate enough to get a spot in the Trikafta clinical trial program in 2018. You know, I think I became a good clinical trial patient because as we see it, there's two resistant mutations that go into a cystic fibrosis diagnosis. I'm a heterozygote, meaning my two mutations aren't the same ones. One is quite common. The other one is pretty rare. So it's I kind of make a good clinical trial participant given my somewhat rarity with that second mutation that I have. And I went through a trial program for Candy in 2013 and then Simdico in 2015, 16, whatever it was. Both failed for my particular genetic profile on CF. And I think looking back at they, we kind of, it was like a flip of the coin, like maybe it would work, maybe it wouldn't work. The drugs do in fact work for you know, about 40 or 50% of the population, you know, people who have two copies of the most common genetic mutation. So they were a proof of concept that the drug maker was on the right path to at least rescuing CFTR for the broader parts of the population. Tricapta trial started in 2018 and it was... Uh, I can still remember the day, April 9th, 2018, is when I enrolled and dosed the study drug. Of course, it was a blinded trial. You know, half the population got the placebo and the other half got the live drug. And I can tell you that after 12 hours, I knew I had the real drug because all of a sudden my oxygen saturation, which was at a baseline of about 90 to 92%, suddenly peaked at 99% for the first time in my life. It was amazing to watch it happen. But of course, you don't want to get your hopes up like this is too good to be true. But three days later, I couldn't deny it when my cough suddenly went away. My cough disappeared. My energy came back. I started putting on weight almost immediately. And then two weeks later, when I was back from my first visit, my pulmonary function skyrocketed. And if you're looking at a scale to, to determine severity of, of disease, I would say that I probably started the trial at severe cystic fibrosis and ended the trial a year and a half later at mild and moderate cystic fibrosis. I mean, in no small way has Trikafta transformed and changed my life. And the best way to describe what happened to me was actually during a, a men's recreational ice hockey game. The listeners out there may not know that although my dad had a great NFL career, his real love is ice hockey. And we play ice hockey together, or we did when I lived in New York. For many years when I was very sick, I would still play. And, you know, I would kind of get out there maybe 10 or 15 times a year and try to skate up and down the ice and get off and catch my breath and then go back out for a quick shift. And I would just cough, cough, cough. It was a really uncomfortable experience for a number of years. But that first game after I started on the, the study drug, it was like a parachute had been clipped off my back and I was feeling young again. I you know, was out there on the ice for you know, minutes at a time, not coughing, breathing deeply to the point where my teammates and my dad were just so completely in awe of what had happened. Like, what the hell has happened to Gunnar? That's when I realized that Trikafta was, well, what is now called Trikafta, but at the time we called the triple combo, is the real deal. It was something that suddenly showed me that my future was unlocked. After so many years of hard living from 2013 to 2018, when I started the trial, I underwent almost two dozen medical interventions, hospital-based care. And it was a hard way to live. But I suddenly had to realize that, wow, I'm healthy again. Uh, and it wasn't until my now wife and I 
took a road trip. I put her in the car and I was like, we're going to some Civil War battlefields and big history buff. And she sat along like the trooper that she was. The one compromise we made was that we had to get an old time photo at Gettysburg and we were touring the Gettysburg battlefield on segways. So I compromised there. But on the way home from the trip, we were sitting in traffic on the Jersey Turnpike. I'm sure you both have been there many times. And she asked me pointedly is about six months after the trial began, well, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? And it was the first time that it dawned upon me that I would be able to think about that. And it was a great, amazing conversation to have. And it's what led me to grad school and to us getting married and, and now expecting a baby in a few days. That's amazing. So we ask every guest the same question. Has there been a type of conversation or a conversation specifically that you've found the most difficult? Yeah, I can think of a few that have been tough, but one sticks out in particular. I was a senior in high school. And like my dad, I wanted to be the star football player on our local high school team. Like that was my goal growing up. Uh, I started playing high school football. As most kids do, they're just kind of thrown right into the meat grinder. They got to make it through those summer workouts, through JV years, and then work their way up to varsity. I did that. I had paid my dues and by the end of my junior year of high school, I took over as the starting quarterback of the team. I had a lot of games. I threw a touchdown pass. ESPN covered it. Like it was one of those classic kids overcoming the odds kind of stories that they love to throw on ESPN on Saturday morning. It was a really cool thing. I was riding really high. I was excited. I was looking forward to my senior year when my friends and I were going to be able to play together. And that summer between junior and senior year, I developed mononucleosis, which was probably the first time in my life that I experienced declining CF that we couldn't control. And it was eye-opening in a sense that, okay, wow, this is real. Whatever we're doing is not working. We just kept trying and iterating with our care plan and trying to figure out how to get control of my declining lung function. But while that was going on, I was still trying to work out. I was doing summer practices. I was doing everything in the background that I had been doing in years prior because I was geared up to being the starting quarterback my senior year. But by the time training camp rolled around, it was quite clear to everyone that I was not who I once was. I lost a ton of weight over the summer. I couldn't keep muscle mass on. Workouts were just really hard on me. Distance runs or sprints or whatever, I was always towards the back of the pack. And it became quite clear that it just it wasn't going to work out. And as we sort of went to the second or third week of practice, I was no longer taking snaps with the starting lineup and all that stuff. But now the competitive streak in me just kept pushing me. It kept pushing me as hard as I could go until one day we were doing sprints. We were doing conditioning workouts at the end of practice. uh, And I actually collapsed on the field. And I was down on my back and everyone's worst nightmare was coming to fruition. All my teammates that I had CF, everyone's that I had CF. There was no secret. And I kind of came to with my entire team sort of standing around me like they had all just seen a ghost, knew the trainer, the coaches are running over. And I brushed myself off, picked myself up. I looked down and my entire jersey was covered in blood. I had a massive hemoptysis right there on the football field when I came to. And of course, everyone's terrified. It's like I said, the worst, everyone's worst nightmare coming to fruition. And I said, I can breathe. Like everyone just, I'm trying to be the adult here. Everyone relax. And I said, just call my mom. She'll know what to do. Don't call an ambulance. Just call my mom. So we got my mom on the phone and she said, I'm, I'm coming in. We're going to go to the doctor. We you know, rushed right into the CF Center at Columbia. 
And we had what I consider to be one of the most difficult conversations I've ever had, where my doctor very plainly said to me, you know, Gunnar, I don't think you can play football this year. It's just not going to happen. We have to get control of whatever is happening to you so that you can think about everything else. Like there's nothing else to think about right now. And I was crushed. I had been looking forward to one thing my entire life, being the starting quarterback of my high school football team. And in a matter of minutes, it was taken away from me. And my doctor basically laid out a care plan that was going to be extremely intensive and incorporate bronchoscopies and long-term IV antibiotics and continued follow-up and things that would make it unsafe for me to continue to compete because my body was going to go under a lot of medical trauma in addition to whatever else was already happening with accelerating disease. And it was sort of laid out as if I had the choice, like I had to give the green light to let it happen. And she said, go home, talk to your parents and let me know in the morning what you want to do. So I was on the verge of tears the entire car ride home. My mom called my dad and you know, my dad was coming up from work and just be ready. Gunner needs to have a conversation with you when you get home. So I kind of moseyed on into the, you know, the study or the office that we had in my childhood home. And my dad and I had a sort of like a one-to-one conversation. And the way he kind of broke the tensity was he started the conversation up by saying, you know, Gunnar, like there's something that I've really needed to tell you for a long time and I haven't done it quite yet. And it's just that you really suck at football. You are the worst player I've ever seen in my entire <laughs> life. And I think I was just so unbelievably shocked when I heard that, that I didn't know what to do. Like I thought we were going to be talking about my CF, and now all of a sudden I'm getting criticized for my athletic ability, and I just don't know like what's going on. But really what my dad was doing, and maybe not the most poetic way, was getting my mind off of this one dream that I had and shifting it to everything else that I had going for me in my life, despite my CF. I had to think about college. I had to think about my winter hockey season, my senior hockey season. And in a lot of ways, I probably was right. I was probably a better hockey player than I was a football player. And it was really more of a conversation about being aggressive with my cystic fibrosis care because there is no other way to treat for CF. There is only one way. It's to be aggressive. And that's what I took away from sort of two very different kinds of conversations talking about the same exact thing. And the next morning, we called the doctor, said, okay, green light, let's get going with this care plan and get this under control. I love the way he kind of redirected the whole conversation and used a little humor and a little hard love. And uh, I think, boy, did he handle that conversation well, I think. Yeah, I mean, he he probably could have been a coach (laughs) and maybe in another life, he would have been a coach. That's great. Gunnar, I want to ask you about the foundation and what the foundation is doing with athletes why your dad started. How old were you when he started? And when did you take over? So I uh, was diagnosed in 1993 at age two. Foundation started right then and there. I think my dad recognized that he and my mom recognized that they had a responsibility to do something, not only for their son, but also for cystic fibrosis, this community that they were suddenly thrust into. And the truth is that actually prior to me being diagnosed, My parents had been big fundraisers for cystic fibrosis in Cincinnati because my dad was friends with Frank DeFord, the sports writer, who lost his daughter to CF in the 70s. So my parents, in some maybe weird twist of fate, were very involved in cystic fibrosis even before I was diagnosed. So they knew what to expect. They knew enough about CF, but they never imagined that I would live with it, obviously. But they felt like they could do something about it. And since then, the foundation's raised about $160 million in the fight against CF and Initially, the money went sort of 
to the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation's Therapeutics Development Network and the path for a cure through them. Because the CF Foundation has so much tremendous success in financing, drug development, and sort of turning itself into a venture capitalist and sort of creating such an amazing endowment strategy. We as a foundation have had to sort of pivot what we've done to support. And we realized that patients were sort of still being left out, coming out to dry, right? Drug development takes a long period of time. So we got to think about patients in the here and now so that they can be around and be successful until those drug breakthroughs come to fruition. So we spent a lot of time thinking about how best to assist patients in the here and now. We provide scholarships for people with cystic fibrosis, going through undergrad and graduate degrees. We provide transplant assistance grants for people who are in that end stage of the illness. We have provided disaster relief funding for families. Sort of not long after Hurricane Harvey just completely uprooted southeastern Texas, we started providing assistance for displaced CF families as a result of financial disasters. And then unfortunately, recently, we've had to also open up a COVID-19 economic relief program for CF families that have had to make the difficult decision. Do I go to work and risk exposure to the virus or do I stay home and protect my CF family? So those are things that we take very seriously and things that we do a lot of work with. We also do a lot of patient advocacy. And we recognize that both my father and I, we have a great, tremendous platform and that we are very thoughtful about that platform. And we use it to advance cystic fibrosis issues concerns, causes like healthcare access, preserving the drug development that exists in cystic fibrosis. Equitable vaccine uptake was also another thing that we worked on during the pandemic. If you remember back in the early parts of the pandemic, they were rationing care and maybe unfortunately some other hospitals are still doing that. We were talking a lot about making sure that cystic fibrosis patients weren't discriminated against and could access continuing care. Recently, we're talking a lot about preserving the telehealth that has emerged during COVID-19. I've always kind of felt that there's no reason to ever put a CF patient in harm's way for a hospital-acquired infection. Why not transition uh, that care to being remotely? So a lot of those issues are things that we think about and talk about from an advocacy front. And then we do continue to support research and also technology advances in cystic fibrosis. The the Boomer Science Foundation has actually funded the largest disease-specific mental health study, interventional study in cystic fibrosis, looking at a cystic fibrosis-specific mental health intervention. So that's an ongoing study that we're funding. And then we also are committed to providing technology for cystic fibrosis care centers and academic researchers translating academic work into therapeutic development through technology platforms that we've helped partner with. So we do a lot. But one of my favorite things that we're doing right now, and this is, I know, something that Liz is very close to, but we've engaged into... uh, name, image, and likeness contracts with six athletes with cystic fibrosis competing at the varsity level in the NCAA. As far as we know, we're the only nonprofit in the United States that's actually supporting patients within our own population competing at that level. We have six amazing athletes, of which Liz's daughter, Belle, is one of them. Go Belle. Go Belle. Go Belle. (laughs) She is awesome. And so are our five other athletes that are competing in uh, lacrosse, soccer, track and field, football, and gymnastics. So we are super pumped for our athletes to be brand ambassadors for the foundation that we, of course, love supporting people with cystic fibrosis directly like Bell. And I remember, Gunnar, many years ago, I mean, cystic fibrosis, as you said, has come so far. It's incredible. Thanks to your foundation and other and all this research. But I remember hearing about, you know, I was always interested in medicine, and but I remember in college or medical school, I think it was, Hearing that Boomer Esiason's son has cystic fibrosis, he's playing football, he's playing sports and going, 
Wow, that's amazing. I didn't think cystic fibrosis kids can do athletics. And now look at where we are. There's mm-hmm. hundreds and thousands of them. And it just goes to show you what medicine can do when it yeah. combines and teams up with charities. We can do some great things here in the United States. Yeah, it, it really is amazing. I say maybe crudely that cystic fibrosis was the greatest story in medicine only to be displaced by the vaccines. So I think CF has come a long way. I think that the stat that gives me the most hope and pride to be part of the cystic fibrosis population is that the number of patients living older than 18 years old continues to grow far beyond the number of patients living under the age of 18. That shows that this is no longer a childhood disease. It's unfortunately something that has to be lifelong managed, but I can promise you that the Boomer Sison Foundation will be around until we have to start thinking about geriatric care for CF patients. Fantastic. <laughs> Amazing. How does someone get in touch with you should they want to reach out to you? Yeah. So I do have a blog, donorsiason.com. That's where I blog. I will say I have not been a great blogger lately just because we've been preparing for a baby. You're uh, a little busy. Yeah. So, but I do blog. So donorsiason.com is really kind of where you can check me out. I do also tweet on Twitter, tweet out my thoughts, follow me on Instagram and stuff like that. But you can also see what the Boomer Siason Foundation is doing at asiason.org. You can follow our name, image, and likeness athletes also, where we've got a full list of there, which includes Liv's daughter. But yeah, I'm excited about the future for people with cystic fibrosis. We still have work to do. There's still about 10% of the patient population that does not have life-altering drugs. So we still work for them. And we also, of course, have patients who are on the other side of receiving transplants who still need supportive care. So CF is maybe not as far from being cured as we had all kind of thought it would be many years ago, but we are on the right path, but there's still work to do and we will continue to do it. So for those out there, don't stop giving. Don't stop pushing awareness for cystic fibrosis. Please keep giving. We'll put all of Gunner's contacts on the show notes. And this has been really just a great episode. Liz, awesome job. (laughs) Yeah, great job, Liz. Thanks for being my guinea pig, Gunner. I appreciate it. You may have another career ahead of you. Hope the the doc doesn't doesn't mind. (laughs) No, I I think I'll go on a six-month vacation and let her handle the (laughs) podcast now. This is awesome. Gunner, thank you so much. Liz, thanks so much. This has been great. I can't wait for the audience to go ahead and hear this. If you've enjoyed this episode, please go ahead and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. If you'd like to get in touch with Gunner, that'll be in the show notes. If you want to get in touch with Liz or I at the Orsini Way or hear more about what we do, please go ahead to theorsiniway.com and you can contact all of us. So thank you so much, Gunner. Thank you, Liz. This has been great. Thank you so much. Doc, Liz, thanks for having me on. Well, before we leave, I want to thank you for listening to this episode of Difficult Conversations, Lessons I Learned as an ICU Physician. And I want to thank the Finley Project for being such an amazing organization. Please, everyone who's listening to this episode, go ahead, visit thefinleyproject.org, see the amazing things they're doing. I've seen this organization literally save the lives of mothers who lost infants. So to find out more, go to thefinleyproject.org. Thank you, and I will see you again on Tuesday. If you enjoyed this podcast, please hit the subscribe button and leave a comment and review. To contact Dr. Orsini and his team or to suggest guests for future podcasts, visit us at theorsiniway.com. The comments and opinions of the interviewer and guests on this podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the opinions and beliefs of their present and past employers or institutions.